Well, good afternoon, church. Thank you for joining us here once again to open up God's Word. And if you've been with us over the past month or so here, uh, we are still in that familiar place, uh, the place of Athens, uh, where Paul has been for roughly, uh, well, in our time, about four weeks. But Paul spent a very brief amount of time there, but oh, so much was going on. And so that's why we've been covering it for this past couple of weeks now. And I had intended that this would be our last week considering uh, Acts chapter 17, where Paul's time in Athens is. But we're going to have one more week in Athens, and so we just can't seem to leave this place. But uh, there's so much wonderful truth from God's Word here in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34, that we must just stand uh, under His uh, instruction for one more week. But as it is for today, as we open up to Acts chapter 17, we're going to be focusing on the portion of Paul's sermon before the Areopagus, where it's really his conclusion. He's told them what they need to know about who God is and the fact that God is one God and that there is no need for another. And now he, he, he shifts the idea into a, a, a confrontation where every single person who is hearing him as he's proclaiming the gospel to them needs to respond in faith to the message that he gives, the message of salvation, which alone comes through Jesus Christ. And so as we open to this passage today, we're going to be also confronted ourselves with who Jesus is and why every single man and woman must call upon his name to be saved. And so if you will, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 22 to 34, where our focus today will be from verse 27 to the verse uh, 31. But as we have been doing, we'll continue to read it from its whole context so that we can capture all that God's Word is saying to us. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful opportunity to come now to open your word. Lord, we thank you for the instruction that we have received as we've gone over this uh, portion of your word in the book of Acts for the past month or so now. God, we thank you that your word is, is always applicable, always on time, always able to pierce through the, the, the hearts and the thoughts and the souls and the intents of man. God, we thank you that, that by your word we are instructed, by, by your word we are reproved, by your word we are trained. Lord, we thank you for just the blessed gift that we have to be able to come before your word now. And I ask that you would have all of us attentive to what it is you are saying to us by this message here today in order that we would be able to be faithful witnesses of Christ as you have commissioned us to be, those of us who are in you. Uh, Lord, we ask for your blessing upon us now as we, as we open your word. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Now, the world and the society that we live in have a savior complex. They have a savior complex. Everyone, wherever you go, every single individual in the world today is seeking for a savior. And this manifests itself in many forms, but the reality is, is there are people who are seeking those who are going to rescue them from all their troubles and worries and bring them to this sort of utopia. This is seen all around us in our day. You have those who think that the government is going to be their savior. 
that the government is the almighty government that's going to supply all of their needs. When someone does them wrong, the government's going to right that wrong. When someone uh, needs some food or needs some shelter or needs some clothing, the government's going to provide that for them. They see the government as the all-encompassing Savior that is going to save them from the troubles of this life. And now those who are within the government know this, and so they prop themselves up as the saviors of the community or of the world in which they are governing. We know this to be true because we are in an election time in our own city here today uh, in Los Angeles. We have the election upcoming with the mayor and the mayoral race and, and also the appointing of some of the judges in the district courts. We also have the propositions that are going to be voted on. And in every one of these, they all have this sort of savior complex within them which says we're going to right the wrongs that are happening here in our city. We're going to fix these things. We're going to get things going and everything's going to be well. They're making all of these promises because they know that people are seeking a savior, seeking someone who is going to be able to enamor them in such a way that they would gather their vote and then they would be able to have this utopia here in Los Angeles in our case, but anywhere in the world. The government officials often prop themselves up as saviors. Still also you have those who expect to find a savior within humanity. With this we can call those people like uh, secular humanists. They say that humanity, all we need to do is to just get along. We just need to love one another. And if that is the case, well, then there'll be world peace. There'll never be any wars. There'll never be any fighting. Mankind will get along, and everyone will just love one another. Within the humanist movement, they often think that the idea of God or government or anything else for that matter is only a crutch that people use, which inhibits man's ability to get along and to be able to save themselves. You also have those who think that science and modern medicine is going to be mankind's savior. With all of the advances and all of the uh, newfound ideas that come about each day as scientists are making new discoveries, people say, well, this is it. Science is going to be able to bring about salvation. Knowledge is going to bring us into salvation. We're going to be fine now because we are far removed from the days of old where we didn't know things, but now we know things, and so things are going to go well. Still also what you have in one of the saddest manifestations of the Savior complex that we see in our society today is those who think that death is the Almighty Savior. They think that in death, everything will be washed away. They won't have to worry about anything whatsoever, and so death is their Savior. And we see this to be the case given the rise of suicides in our society. I looked up a statistic, and I don't really like statistics all that much because people can just make them up. But in this, in this statistic, what it said was nearly a half a million people committed suicide over a 10-year period. Within this study, it also said that suicides are often underreported. And so you have those within that this life has nothing to offer them. The epitome of this belief is found in a poem written by a man by the name of A.C. Swinburne, and in it he writes, From too much love of living, from hope and fear set free, we thank with brief thanksgiving whatever gods may be, that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never, that even the weariest river winds somewhere safe to see. This is the idea, and I mention it because this is the idea which embodies the philosophy that Paul was faced with in Athens during his time dealing with the Epicureans. They were totally, totally convinced of the fact that this life was the only life that one lives, and if it's not going well, well, you can just end it, what, uh, end it all together, or if it is going well, live it up because this is all that matters for your existence. There's no responsibility. There's no afterlife. There's nothing. This is it. And so those who are struggling in life will kill themselves. Those who are doing well, well, they'll live it up and soak up all that they can because they know that this life is it. Now, what are these people seeking to be saved from? It's important that we know this so that we can then show them the one true Savior who alone has the power to save from not only the wrath that is to come, but also to give us life and life to the fullest even now as we live our lives to the glory of God. What are these people seeking to be saved from? Well, this idea is also diverse as the forms that I have mentioned. You have those who are seeking to be saved from an illness or those who are seeking to be saved from a, a poor social class or social status that they have. You still also have those who are seeking to be saved from uh, uh, not having success in this life. And so in order to climb the corporate ladder, they, they link up with others and they get education and thinking that climbing the, the corporate ladder is going to bring them success and salvation in this life. Still also you have those who are just wanting a little bit of relief from the stresses of this life. The list really can go on and on and on, but the reality is, is that there are people that are seeking a Savior. We have a Savior complex in our day. And the reality is, is this is nothing new. People often think because they're so wrapped up in what, it is, what is happening now for them, they, they think, well, everything that's happening now is new. There's, this has never happened before. We live in unprecedented times. But the reality is, is this is absolutely nothing new. You see, as Paul was going to the town of Athens, as he was there, as we picked up in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, when he was dropped off there, he entered a town that had a savior complex itself. Athens was a place that was proud of its government. 
It was very proud of its government. Even though it was under the rule of the Romans, the Greeks were given some leeway to govern themselves, and so they hoped in the power of their government to bring them salvation. If something went wrong, they went to the government. If issues arose, they went to the government. If they needed something, they went to the government. The government was going to be their savior. There were also those who were humanists who hoped in humanity, and this was the Stoics. If you, read with, if you were with us a few weeks ago when we looked at Acts chapter 16, uh, 17, verse 16 to 21, we learned about the Epicureans and the Stoics. Well, the Stoics were there, and they were a philosophy that was started uh, by uh, a man who, uh, probably around the third century, and uh, he taught a number of different philosophies, but, but he was a humanist in, in the truest form. What is said about the Stoics is that they would do is they would often, often argue for the unity of humanity. They would say that reason, the world state, and the community is, as the great city were major themes of theirs, along with a heavy emphasis on self-sufficiency. They were humanists. They lived totally for the purpose of uniting humanity once and for all. They were seeking, as the secular humanists in our day do, to unite humanity with love and, and care and just really getting along, not arguing, not having any wars. They were really those uh, peaceful individuals, as they would call themselves. But still also, as I have previously mentioned, there was those who were of the school of Epicurus, the Epicureans whose views could be summed up in this short phase, phrase, nothing to fear in God and nothing to feel in death. There was so many of these individuals who had savior complexes in Athens, and Paul was confronted by them in order that, uh, confronting them in order that he would be able to lead them to the true savior. Now, of all of the savior complexes that I have mentioned about the Athenians and also of our day, there is still one that, that, that really epitomized who the Athenians were. Their savior complex was in their pantheon, pantheon of gods. They just had endless amount of gods. Sure, they trusted in the government. Sure, they trusted in one another. Sure, they, they, they trusted that death, when death came about, everything would be good. But they also trusted in their gods. Not one god, but their gods. And as we have learned, they had a pantheon of gods. Some, some estimates give them to have up to about 30,000 individual gods that they were worshiping in order that these gods would be able to save them from the variety of ailments that they had. They had the ailments of dealing with the uh, weather or with food or, or with anything. You, you name it, they had a God for it. And they were seeking to have salvation from these gods. This was what Paul was dealing with as he was finding himself uh, uh, really encompassed by everything that was going on in the town of Athens that he was in. Now, the problem with this is much like the problem that we have within our own day. You see, people are seeking a Savior. It is good that they are seeking a Savior. Man has an innate instinct, instinctual uh, uh, nature within themselves that they, they realize that they need to be saved from something. And as Paul was going there, he had people who were seeking a Savior in all the different wrong ways that you can seek a Savior by. Through the government, uh, through your friends or your family members, through yourself, or, or, or through the false gods that these people had created and, and, and brought into existence. They had all of these things, all of these things that Satan seeks to distract people by in order that they would be able to find the salvation that they are seeking. All of these things, people were seeking these things out to be saved, and yet Paul must go to them in such a way that he can present to them the one true Savior so that their Savior complex can be satisfied, which alone rests in the power of God to save mankind from the wrath that is to come. Now, it's good that man is instinctually seeking a Savior. When, when people are seeking a Savior, we have a, an, an in with them in such a way that we can say, I, I see that you're seeking these Saviors, but they are not satisfying. They are never enough. And we know that they're never enough because people are constantly seeking. They're constantly opening up new doors in their belief system so that they can finally have the rest that they are seeking to be saved from whatever ailment that is plaguing them in the society. They're constantly seeking a Savior. But where these people go wrong is where everyone goes wrong is they follow Satan into the, all of the wrong paths. They look for saviors in all of the wrong paths and, 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 and find themselves only hoping that one savior would actually come and really save them from what they are seeking to be saved from. You see, what we have the opportunity to do in evangelism really is to lead people on the right path to know the one true savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to direct these people in their search for a Savior, namely the Savior who has come, in order that, in order that He would not only save man from its greatest need, namely, namely their problem with their Maker, but also He will apply uh, His own righteousness on our behalf that, that, that we would not only be justified from our sins, but have life everlasting. That death will not be a fearful thing for us any longer. 
that, 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 that nothing that ever happens to us in our lives will, will restrict our, our joy and gladness and contentment that we can have as it is found alone in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is seeking to bring these people to an opportunity to be able to be confronted with the Savior, the only Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. Now, it has been masterful how he has got himself to this point where he can, he can share with them who the Savior actually is. Because up to this point, as he is standing before the Areopagus in his speech, he has not yet mentioned the name of Jesus Christ. He is getting to that point, but in his proclamation of the gospel message to them, he must allow for these individuals to see that they have a need for the Savior. He does not just immediately go, well, you need the Savior, and here's the Savior, and believe on Him, and you will be saved. He doesn't go into it in, in, in such a fast-moving way like that, but it's a masterful way in which he, he goes to these individuals where they will be able to see their need for a Savior in such a way that as they see this need, they can call upon Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, in order to see how he gets to this point where we'll pick up in verse 27, I want to just do a brief review in order that if you weren't with us or if you've forgotten, we can see how Paul found himself to this place. If we go back to verse 16 where Paul was dropped off in Athens, as Luke tells us, Paul was dropped off in Athens because he was fleeing from the unbelieving Jews in Thessalonica who were seeking to kill him. They had grown tired of him proclaiming the gospel there in Thessalonica, especially in the synagogues, and so they chased him out of the synagogues there in Thessalonica. Paul went down to Berea, and as he went down to Berea, the Thessalonian Jews came and followed him there. And so Paul had to make a choice. It was either to be killed by the Jews, the Thessalonian Jews there in Berea, or to live to share the gospel another day. And so the Berean believers took Paul, and they brought him over to Athens and dropped him off there with the intention that they were going to uh, send both Silas and Timothy to him in order that they could take up sharing the gospel message, continuing there in, in Athens and then going into Corinth and so on, as we'll see as Acts unfolds. And so Paul is there, and he's waiting. He's, he's waiting. He enters into this town of Athens, which if you are unfamiliar with Athens, it is a great, magnificent town. It has wonderful architecture. It is, it is full of intellectual minds. There are countless, countless wonderful, wonderful things to be able to be enamored by if you go into Athens. And so Paul is there, and he's soaking in everything. He's taking it all in. He's seeing all of the sights. And all that Paul can really see with his spiritual eyes, which only give you the sight to see what Paul was able to see, he just sees a town that is full of idols. Rather than going into this miraculous town of Athens and saying, wow, look at this architecture, look at all of this knowledge that these people possess, all that Paul could say with great spiritual eyes is this town is a place that is full of idols. This spiritual perception that he had, which we also are to have if we are going to be able to meet people with the gospel in such a way that they will see that they can be saved from their sins, that, 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 that they see this need that, wow, I am, I am wasting away my life. I, no matter how much knowledge I have, no matter how much glory is in the city that I live in, it is nothing if I do not know the one true God. And so what Paul does is he is provoked in his spirit. He goes into wherever he could. He went into the synagogues. He went into the marketplaces. He went before individuals. He was just, just going throughout the town seeking to make Christ known to these individuals as he was there. And this created several responses as we looked at back in Acts chapter 17 during the early portions from verse 16 to verse 21. The responses were varied. You had those who mocked him and they said, what does this babbler wish to say? Merely saying, this guy's a, an imbecile. He doesn't know what he's talking about, so we're not going to give him any time. Still also you had those who were interested and were saying, well, we'd like to hear a little bit more about this. And so what happens is they take Paul, they bring him before the Areopagus, which is a court, the highest court, the Supreme Court of Athens, in order that Paul could have a hearing before them so that they could be able to understand what Paul actually is saying. Certainly as Paul was proclaiming the gospel to them, we saw that there were some misunderstandings. They thought they didn't know what Paul was really even talking about. They knew he was preaching a foreign divinity. They knew he had said the name Jesus, and they, they knew he had talked about the resurrection, but, but they didn't know anything that he was saying. These were all new things to him, to them. And so what they do is they bring him before the Areopagus court, who was the ruling matter, who ruled on all matters of society, even the intellectual matters. And so to this place, this Areopagus, it was a court, there's 30 men, probably more than that, but in the meeting place where he was, you had the 30 men of the Areopagus who he would stand before, and all of the onlookers are listening, and so Paul is tasked with sharing the gospel message to these individuals, and, and he, has gone, he has gone about it in a masterful, masterful way. 
as we go and look in verse 22 to verse 23, what he does is instead of lambasting them for their foolish worship of idols, we know idols are nothing. Paul knows idols are nothing. Remember, they're, they're worshiping upwards of 30,000 idols throughout their city. Instead of just immediately accosting them for their foolishness to be worshiping idols, what he says is, I see that you all are very, very religious. You're worshiping. You're very religious worshipers. But he noticed something within their worship that he was able to use as a bridge to be able to lead them to know the one true gospel message that he was going to proclaim to them. He noticed within their worship that they had these statues to the unknown God. Within their own worship system, they had a proclaimed ignorance that Paul was able to capitalize on in such a way that instead of confronting them with their own ignorance, he's, with, 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 uh, with ignorance and saying, well, you guys are fools for believing this, he says, you guys have said that you're ignorant of these things. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I now proclaim to you. And going back to last week, as we saw from verse 24 to verse 26, we saw that Paul proclaimed the unknown God to them. He proclaimed who God was in order that they would be able to know who to respond to as he calls for them to repent of their sins, which is what we're going to look at today. If you don't remember who God is or who, God proclaim, or who Paul proclaimed God to be, he says that God is not one God of many, but rather he is one God. He is one God who exists as the creator, the sustainer, the Lord, and the ordainer of all things. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He is upholding all things by the word of his power, and he is bringing all things to completion, even, even every single uh, uh, macro and microcosm that is uh, filling uh, the, the city of Athens as, as Paul was there. He says God is over all things, and you need to respond to him. As Paul was proclaiming the gospel to them and telling them about who God was, you can imagine that he may have even been thinking about Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7 to 9, as he is declaring the great sovereignty of God. God saying in Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the, does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making, or your work has no handles? You see, all people everywhere must come to the realization that God is God and there is no other. Paul must immediately be able to get these people to see that their worship of these idols was wrong because there is one true God. In their mind, he was an unknown God, but he is a knowable God, and Paul was going to proclaim them to him on that day. And he does. And as Paul will later write in Romans chapter 11, every single individual must come to the conclusion that Paul does in Romans chapter 11 that God alone is worthy of our praise. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and to him and through him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You see, Paul is getting these people to a point where they can say that in their own heart in order that they would respond to the offer of salvation that Paul is going to give them now as we look from verse 27 onward. He's getting these people to a point where they can be led to a place of worship or really humility before this God that they have yet to this point or whether they have up to this point not yet known. That they would be able to get to this point where they could say, we have sinned against this almighty God and we must call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, who alone is the sacrifice that God has given on our behalf to bring forgiveness of sins. You see, Paul is hoping for them to get to this point, and we see this play out here as Paul calls them. He calls them to, to seek out God, to, not, to no longer give themselves over to this idolatrous worship, to no longer give themselves to the pantheon of God, to no longer give themselves to the intellectual stimulation that they often had as they were debating in the marketplace about all sorts of things, but rather to give themselves to the one true God who alone has the power to save. You see, what Paul is getting them to do is to get them to respond to the gospel that he proclaims. And as we see from verse 27 on, he leads them to the point where they can be convicted to do just that. And that is what we are seeking to do as we share the gospel message today with individuals in the world, with humanity, with, with those who we live with, with those who we are, are, are in relationship with through work or, or even just passing by or we just know through acquaintance. 
We must get them to the point where they recognize their, that they have to be humble before God, that they have sinned against their Creator, that they have fallen short of His glory, and they, they must seek Him before it is too late. That is what every single individual must be brought to as we share the gospel message to them. And then, as we get them to that point, we then can declare to them the gracious, merciful God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to bring about the forgiveness of their sins. And so first what Paul does here as we pick up the speech from where we left off last week in verse 26 is we see in verse 27 to verse 28 that he calls on them to seek him. He calls on every single man and woman that is there before them, before him to seek out God, declaring the sovereignty of God, declaring that God is over all things, should lead every single individual who hears that truth to seek God. And that is what Paul says from verse 27 and verse 28. He says they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You see, in evangelism, we are calling people to seek God. You say, well, why is this? Why are we calling people to seek God? Is it just because we like God and we want other people to like him? Is it because, as some people will say, we're just trying to impose our own religion on others? Far be it from us to do that. We're not trying to impose any religion on anyone. We are trying to lead people into the right relationship with their Creator, knowing that, knowing that when they die on the day of judgment, when they stand before their Maker, they are going to be without excuse, and they are going to have no works of righteousness which will allow for them to enter into the presence of God, and they will be damned into an eternity in hell if they do not, yeah, if, they, if they have not uh, professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far be it from us to proclaim to people that they ought to seek God just because we like God or just because we're trying to impose a religion on them. We are calling people to seek God because God is calling for people to seek Him. We are God's messengers. We are God's mouthpiece who He has equipped or called in order that we would be able to make His message known into the ends of the earth. You see, God is calling on people to seek Him. And this is what verse 27 makes clear. Paul says, if we think about back to the context of verse 24 to verse 26, he says, God is the Lord, God is God, is God and there is no other. God is creator, God is uh, the ordainer, and God is the sustainer. Why has God all of these things? Why has God made himself known in humanity in this way? Verse 27, that they should seek him, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You see, God is calling on people to seek him. And he's not a God who is far removed from his creation either. You have those who are the deists who think that God has just really just uh, created all of the world and wound it up and just left it to its own device. They think that God is far removed from all of his creation and he is, he is impossible to find. God is not impossible to find. If they would earnestly seek God, they would be able to seek him and find him and God would redeem them from their sins as they profess faith in his son our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God is not a God who is far removed from his creation. Rather, he is calling on everyone everywhere to turn from their sinful rebellion against him and to serve him only. And this is, this is clear throughout the pages of Scripture. If we just look at the pages of Scripture, we can see that God is not some far removed God, that God is not some God who just wants to damn people to an eternity in hell, that God is not unjust, that God is not this God that, that, that does not deserve praise, but rather God is a merciful God he is a steadfast God who is patiently, patiently calling sinners to himself through the message of the gospel of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6 to 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. You see, God is calling all to return to him rather than just immediately striking us down because of the sin in which we have done, which he would have been justified in doing, God has given each man and woman a chance to respond in faith to his message of the gospel. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should seek repentance, or all should reach repentance. You see, this passage that I've quoted in 2 Peter comes from a context where you have those who are mocking Christians. They're mocking Christians and they're saying, where is God? You've said that he's going to return. Why has he not returned and destroyed the earth? 
Where is this God that you talk about that is going to redeem you? Where is this God who is going to bring you into his eternal kingdom where you will be able to be in his rest forever and ever? Where is this God that you are talking about? People often mock us, mock us when we talk about God. They say, if God was really here, where is he? Why has God not struck down the earth for the sins in which it is done? And Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, meaning Christ will come, but he is being patient toward us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is declaring from his word that he is not wishing to send anyone to hell, but rather he is calling all men and women everywhere to seek repentance. And in fact, God doesn't send anyone to hell. People, every single person has the responsibility to respond to the offer of the gospel, and they are given the opportunity to reject it. And if they reject it, God lets them go. He lets them go. He allows for them to walk themselves into hell, to, 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 to flee from the mercy in which he has given to them through his son, Jesus Christ. I want us to just listen to these verses that I found uh, in the Scriptures which prove the point that God is not a God who is far off, but rather He is a God that is earnestly calling His creation back to Himself. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 28 to 29, He says, And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him, if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Psalm 105, verse 4, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 12 to, 12 to 14, He says, Then you will call upon Me and come and pray to Me, and I will hear you. You will seek Me and find Me. When you seek Me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. However, to those who do not seek Him, He has these promises to Israel and promises to all who call upon the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, to be saved, that if we seek Him, we will find Him and He will redeem us from our sins. But to those who do not seek Him, what it says in Isaiah chapter 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. He says, woe to those who do not seek him, for his judgment is not far off. God will judge sin. God will judge sinners, and they will be damned to an eternity in hell. But while there is still time, he is calling on men and women everywhere to seek him while he may be found. You see, people always have this apprehension towards coming to God. They always do. You go and share the gospel with someone, they say, well, I would seek God if he would just reveal himself to me. Or they, they say, well, God certainly is not concerned with me and his creation. God doesn't care. He's just, you know, living it up in the sky. If God was real, he wouldn't allow all of this calamity to happen. If God was real, my life would be perfect. You have those people who are constantly rejecting God's call of salvation to them. They, they, they say either, well, if he would just reveal himself to me, I would seek him. Or what they would also say, as I have said, well, God is not concerned with his creation. You also have those who will say, well, well, God doesn't want anything to do with me. They're convinced that God is concerned with his creation, but they think that they're too far gone or they have gone too far away from God. They have sinned too much or sinned too greatly that God is not going to be concerned with any of them. But they are wrong. Every single one of these ideas is wrong. Every single idea which says God is not concerned or, or God is too far or God is just living it up, waiting to damn everyone to an eternity in hell, every single one of these are wrong because you see God is knowable. God is knowable. God is not some far removed God from his creation, but rather as Paul says here, he is actually not far from each one of us. People always say, I just wish God would reveal himself to me. I wish God would just reveal himself to me and then I would believe in him. But the reality is, is God has revealed himself to everyone. And there is no one, there is no one who can say that God has not revealed himself to them. There is no one who can claim that ignorance. There is no one who can say, well, God, I would have believed in you if you just would, would have just proclaimed yourself to me. There is no one who could proclaim this ignorance. And the reason for this is a point that Paul goes on to make here in this verse. He says, God is actually not far from each one of us. And how do we know that God is not far from each one of us? Because creation speaks of his existence. Creation speaks of God's existence. This is what Paul makes the point of just going as we looked at the fact that God is creator and Lord and sustainer and ordainer of creation. The very creation speaks to the fact that there is a creator. The very, the very uh, uh, breath that people breathe speaks to the fact that someone is ordaining that we take these breaths. 
Any individual who says, well, surely there's no creator, finds himself only a fool because creation speaks of God's existence. God's existence is clear as you go in, into the world and you see all of his masterful works throughout the world. He, this did not just happen by chance. This does not just happen because, well, you know, there was one day there was just this little blob and another blob turned into another blob and, and somehow it just boomed itself into existence. None of this would happen. And anyone who believes that only has to be a fool to believe that because creation speaks of a creator. There's an argument that I love, and I hope I get it right because I'm just recalling it from my mind here and now. There's this argument where you say you take someone into an art, uh, an art gallery, take them to their favorite art gallery, wherever they are, and you can imagine you go to them with this art gallery, and there's these paintings on the wall, beautiful paintings, whatever, whatever the favorite artist this person has, you know, Picasso or, or uh, any, I'm not really an artist uh, aficionado, so I don't really know a lot of them, but you know, say Picasso. You go into an art gallery where Picasso's artwork is. A person who believes that things just came out of nothing and they just were, you know, one thing was on another thing and it just boomed into existence, that type of person would have to then go into that art gallery and, and you could say to them, wow, I wonder if someone made these things. I wonder if someone painted these pictures. Did someone actually paint these beautiful masterpieces here? Or did they come about, as the evolutionists would say, well, well, you know, there were just a few little pieces of paint here, and, you know, there was some orange paint here and some yellow paint here and, and some red paint here, and it all just kind of mixed up together, and, and boom, there you had the picture. No, creation speaks of the fact that there is a creator. A piece of artwork speaks of the fact that there was an artist who painted it. And so Paul says creation speaks of the existence of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 19 to 20, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, this would be taken with contempt by many of the Athenians. After all, these Athenians were the cultured and polished intellectuals of their day. They were in the supreme university town of the known world. Here Paul is telling them that they are ignorant of something. Wow, this, 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 this guy who we don't know, this, this Jewish individual who they would have treat, treated as a barbarian because anyone who was not a Greek was a barbarian. They, they say, this guy is telling us that we don't know something? Who is he to say these things? They must be thinking to themselves, this guy does not have a clue what he is talking about, that he lives in a fairy tale to believe that there is one God who created all things. This is the same thing that we deal with in our day as well. You go to someone and you tell them that you believe in the creation story and they say, you're a fool. Hasn't science disproved that? Hasn't science disproved the existence of God? They, they say that you're a fool. But the reality is, and this is so ironic because the same thing that happens in our day is the same thing that was happening in Paul's day. The same thing that has happened in our day is the same thing that has happened in Paul's day. And what is happening, and Paul points this out, is these people will say, you must be a fool to believe in the existence of a creator God. Paul will say, you call me a fool, but your own poets believed in the existence of a God. And he goes on to quote two of them. The same thing happens in our day. People will say, well, science has disproved the existence of God, but do they not know that one of their most famous scientists, the greatest thinker of all time, has said, I believe in God who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of all that exists. One of the most profound thinking minds of the modern society has said he believes in a creator God. And you know who this is? Albert Einstein. Every single individual who says that we must be fools to believe in a creator God is also asserting that Einstein is a fool, which no one would do. They say you've got to be a fool to believe in a God who has created all things where you have Einstein being quoted saying, I believe in God who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of all that exists, which is another way to say, I believe that God has created all things. I believe that there is a God who has created all things. Now, where Einstein went wrong, he did not go and, and, and seek out this God who he knew exists. He did not believe that God was a personal God, that he could be found, that he could be sought after. Rather, Einstein took the approach that, yes, I believe that there is a God who exists, but he cannot be known. You see, the reality is, is so often those profound thinkers in the world today who know that God exists, who cannot deny or disprove his existence, will say, I believe that there is a God who exists, but he cannot be known. He cannot be known. And this is what happened in Paul's day as Paul was standing before the Stoics and the Epicureans. That, that, that Paul was there before, him, before them with these intellectuals, these smart individuals. These people knew what they knew. They knew their stuff. They were the supreme ruling court of Athens. These were smart, smart individuals. 
And, and, and Paul's thinking, if you want to mock me for believing in a creator God, you have got another thing coming to you because the very poets who you worship, the very poets whose writings you have preserved for the last 600 years or so have said the same thing. They have said that there is a creator God who exists. There's two of them that he mentions here. It's fascinating how he does this. He quotes from two of them in verse 28. He quotes first from Epimenides of Crete. This was a man who was by around the year 600 B.C., the same guy who they, uh, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago and learned about the statue to the unknown God, and they, they called upon the wise man to figure out how they could appease the gods because, as it was, there was a, a great calamity in their town, and they, they wanted to know how to appease the gods. And so Epimenides is the one who said, well, take a bunch of sheep, bring them to the top of the Areopagus, let them run free wherever they land, offer a sacrifice there, and that's where the God is that you need to appease. And, and then this brought about all the statues to the unknown God. It's the same person, one who they revere. And this is what Epimenides of Crete says, in him we live and move and have our own being, or have our being. And then the next quotation that we see in verse 28 is from a man by the name of Aratus, who was around the year 315 to 240 BC. He says, for we are indeed his offspring. These two men who were revered by the people of Athens here, Paul quotes them to show them that the very fact that it is not so foolish to believe in a creator God since their own poets did. Their own poets believed in the fact that there was a creator God. There was one who created all things and by whom we have our existence. Now I want us to notice something here because this is very important. It is very important because we see what Paul is doing here is he is contextualizing the situation. And this is something that Pastor Richard talked about a little bit earlier where, uh, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where to the Jew became a Jew and the Greek to the Greek and to the, to the weak to the, he became weak. And this is where he is relating to these people in such a way that he can have a hearing for the proclamation of the gospel. Because as it was, these two people who, have quoted, who Paul quotes here, Epimenides of Crete and also Aratus, when they say, in him we live and move and have our being, and also for we are indeed his offspring, they are not referring to the God of the Scriptures. They're not referring to Jehovah. They're not referring to Yahweh here. Rather, what they are referring to is the mythological God, Zeus. Now, this has brought people in arms. This is a very confusing thing. Why is Paul equating Zeus with the creator God of the Scriptures? Many scholars have had a hard time dealing with this. They have, it's created an uproar. If you read any commentaries, there are pages people are dealing with this. How could Paul quote uh, two pagan poets who are quoting about a mythological God, Zeus, in the same way and use them in the same terminology as the one true God of Scriptures? is to be quoted by. How is Paul doing these things? They, they, they uh, uh, accuse Paul of syncretism, which is the practice of combining different beliefs in various schools of thought. They say, what is Paul doing here, quoting two pagan poets who are referring not to the God of the Scripture, but to the mythological God, Zeus? What, what is he doing here? Well, as I mentioned, it is what has been termed as contextualization. And within contextualization, what it is, is you take a point of contact with the culture which you wish, you, which you wish to engage with in the message of the gospel, and you present a belief that they hold in a new light in order to capture their attention with the message that you wish to proclaim. Now, there is a fine line in doing this. We must never, never sacrifice the message of the gospel. And Paul is not doing that here because the truth in which he gives in verse 28 is a truth that is true. It is absolutely true if it is applied to the right God, which Paul does. It is true. In God, the Creator, the one who is sustaining all things, we do live and move and have our being. We are indeed His offspring. This is true of Yahweh. This is true of the God of the Scriptures. And so what Paul is doing here is presenting this teaching in a new light. But you can be sure he is not equating Zeus with the God of the Scriptures. By no means would Paul do that. He has just said that all of their gods are nothing. He has just said that all of these statues, all of these altars of worship were worthless. They had a temple erected to Zeus there. Paul was including that temple that was erected to Zeus there. Those statues, those altars, those temples were worthless. God did not reside in any of those things. In fact, he could not. You cannot, you cannot uh, uh, make God into, uh, as he says in verse 29, we cannot think of God as being like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. What he does here is he takes a belief that they have which was directed towards the wrong God in order to show them how to view it rightly. He, he leads them to a point where they can see within our own system, and our own idea, there is these poets who, who have said that there is the possibility of a creator God. There is one God who has created all things. And Paul would go on to say to them that you have viewed this God wrongly. It is not Zeus. It is not the God that you think it is, but rather this is the one true creator God in whom I proclaim to you. 
in whom he has proclaimed to them. And so what Paul has done here is he has got them to this point. He has told them that God is one. He has told them that God is the creator, the Lord and sustainer and ordainer of all things, and he has called for them to seek him. And he has showed to them that it is not foolish to seek this one true God because even their own poets were seeking out a God who was the creator of all things. But what Paul would caution them in is to not make the same mistake that their poets did. You see, Epimenides and Aratus, they did not seek the true God. They had an idea that, that, there, that there was a God who could create all things, but they did not seek him out. Rather, they applied to the Creator, the, they, they applied what the Creator alone can do to, uh, to, to Zeus, who is nothing, who is not, he is a mythical God. He doesn't even exist. He is nothing. He is a statue that they have created in their own image. He says, these people have gone wrong. They have not gone all the way to God, come to God totally through his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is calling on them to not make the same mistake. You see, as, as Paul does here, when he, when he calls on them to seek God, he is not telling them to just, to just have this intellectual knowledge about God. He does not want them to just know that God is one, that God is creator, that God is Lord and sustainer and ordainer. That does nothing. Even the demons know that God is that. Even the demons have an intellectual knowledge of God. What, what Paul is calling for them to do in seeking him is that they would seek him rightly in order that they could have a relationship with him, that they would have a personal relationship with their creator. But as it was, they were separated from him. They needed this personal relationship with their creator. He has shown to them that he has exists, that he exists, and in them they move and have their being, that, that they are his offspring, that they are his creation. And now he is going to lead them to the point where they are not merely seeking him intellectually, but rather they are seeking him relationally, where they are going to be able to be forgiven of their sins as they have sinned and fallen short of his glory. You see, as we share the gospel with someone, we're not just trying to prove the existence of God. We certainly must show them that God does indeed exist, but we must not leave them at that point. Rather, we must in turn show them that not only does he exist, but all men everywhere have a responsibility to him, and all men have sinned and fallen short of his glory and need his forgiveness. And this is what Paul will do in verse 29 to verse 31. What he will do is he will show them that because they are his creation or, or his offspring, they are responsible to him and they need his forgiveness. Read it once more with me. He says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, what Paul does here now is he shows them that because they are his creation, because they are his offspring, they are responsible to him, and they need his forgiveness. They need his forgiveness because as it is, God has appointed a day of judgment in which he is going to judge the world by one man, namely Jesus Christ. And if anyone is found outside of the righteousness of God, they will be judged by Jesus Christ and damned to an eternity in hell. Now, note this here. As Paul says, being then God's offspring, he is not referring to it in the way in which we know of the fact that we are God's adopted children through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not saying that we are all children of God in that sense. He is saying that we are all created by God. Every single human that exists to this day has been created by God, created after his own image. Therefore, they are responsible to him. They are not his sons and daughters in the same way that they have been adopted into Christ through the Spirit of God, such as what we have been by faith in Jesus Christ, but they are his creation. They have been created by him. God does sustain them. God, God does allow for the rain and the moon and the sun and the stars to shine upon the righteous and the unrighteous. God does uphold these individuals, and they are responsible to him. You see, people are responsible to the one who has created them. They need to know this. As one of my aunts used to say jokingly, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of it. So also God can say to humanity, you are responsible to me because I have created you. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 says, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine and the soul who sins shall die. You see, every single individual is responsible to God for what they have done and there is coming a day of judgment, as it says in verse 31, when every single person who has ever lived will stand before God in judgment. Every single person is going to stand before God in judgment, and they are going to be responsible for what they have done. Let me give you a thought here that just immediately peeks into my mind as I think about this. People often say, mocking those who believe in God, they say, you just believe in God 
because it allows for you to pacify yourself when things go wrong in this life. You believe in God because, well, you use Him as a crutch when things go wrong. Well, well God's there for you. Or, or when things are not going really good, well, God's still there for you. Or, or when things, you lose a loved one, or, or, well, I know that they're in heaven. They, they say that we use God as a crutch to pacify our, our, our emotions and our feelings. What I say to them is this. To them, I say, the reason they do not believe in God is because to disbelieve in God removes all responsibility in this life. It removes all responsibility. If there's no God, if there's no afterlife, they can just live it up. They can do whatever they want. There's no responsibility. They don't have to respond to anyone. They can do whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want, and there's no responsibility for it. It's easy to not believe in God. It takes away all the responsibility for what we have done. And yet our conscience, our conscience convicts us of our sin constantly because God is using our conscience to draw us to himself, to realize that we are sinners, that, that we have fallen short of something. We have fallen short of something and we must seek out what it is we have fallen short of and namely it is the glory of God that we have fallen short of. And so far from those, far be it from those to say, well, you just believe in God in order to pacify yourselves. I say they believe in God in order to live it up and to not have any responsibility in this life. But the reality is whatever I say, whatever they say is nothing. I can say whatever they want, I want and they can say whatever they want. The fact remains is that God has said that every single one of us are responsible to him as his creation and we will stand before him on the day of judgment that he has appointed. God is going to judge his creation and he has every right to do so. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, since we as God's creation are responsible to him and we have sinned against him, as Paul says in verse 29, he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul's saying, you are wrong for idolatry. You have broken the first and the second commandment. You have created God after your own image. You have done things wrong. You have sinned against this glorious God that I have described to you. you say, they say, well, well, I didn't know any better. You know, that's always the excuse. I didn't know any better. And they could say that about the Athenians here. Paul would say to them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as Paul calls them out for sinning against the first and the second commandment, people are going to say, well, I didn't know. We didn't know. We didn't have the special revelation that the Jews had. The Jews had the first and the second commandment. The Athenians didn't. We would say, well, they have no, they're, then they're excused. God will forgive them for that. That's what people often think. If, people, if they've never heard the gospel, God's just going to forgive them for that, and he's just going to go to let them into heaven because, well, they didn't know any better. There is no pleading ignorance before God. All men are without excuse, which is what Paul says here in verse 30. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. You see, these Athenians here were not only worshiping other gods who are not gods, but on top of that, they had created images of gods and have created an image of God after their own being, after their own image. They had imagined him in their own mind and they created God, which is a violation of the second commandment and also the first commandment to have other gods before him. And to those who say that they do not know and they should be excused from that, what Paul says, as I read in Romans chapter 1 earlier, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to him to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse no one can claim to be excused from knowing what they ought to be doing no one can be no one can claim being to, to be excused from their rebellion against god every single individual is without excuse and paul will go on to say in romans chapter 1 and verse 21 to verse 25 he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It says then in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And you continue on here. Paul says these Athenians are without excuse here. There was a time that God overlooked these things, but now he is calling all men everywhere to repent. And this word overlook can be a confusing word, but as we think about this word where he overlooked these times of ignorance, it is not to say that he did not punish them for their sins. For everyone, 
Everyone was punished by God. All in the Old Testament, God was often punishing the pagan nations for failure to worship Him and to give themselves to His authority and His rightful, uh, righteous control. They were judged by God. What Paul is saying here is he says that God overlooked these things in the past is simply to say is that He did not interfere or intervene in the affairs of men. Namely, He passed them over. He let them go. He led them over to their own devices. As it says, He gave them over to dishonorable passions. They didn't want to seek Him. What, was the, what could be known about Him was clear to Him. They didn't want to seek Him, and so God just let them go. God often in judgment just lets people go to their own foolish devices. This is what we see happening in our day. The judgment of God is revealed in our society today as He has just let people go into their own dishonorable passions. God has just let these people go over to a reprobate mind. But you see, what Paul says here is that times have changed. Before, God did not intervene in the affairs of man, but now He has intervened in the affairs of man by the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. And now He is calling all men everywhere to repent of their sin. He judged those who sinned under the old covenant system, and he, they are damned to an eternity in hell apart from their faith in the one true God of the Scriptures. But even more so today, the responsibility is on every single individual who has ever lived to seek God while he can still be found, and they are to seek him in repentance. As Paul says in verse 30, God is calling on all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sinful ways and to return to himself. But Paul conditions it by saying there is only one way in which this can be done. There is only one way in which man can seek God and truly find Him. God has made it possible for men to find Him. They do not have to grope after Him. They do not have to wish that they could find Him, but rather God has made it possible that man can find Him, and He alone is found in the revelation of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh in order that God would be with us and God would offer up Himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, in evangelism, as we see Paul doing here, we, we call on humanity to seek God. We call on them to seek God, and we, we let them know that they need His forgiveness. We do. We must tell them that they have sinned and fallen short of His glory, but we must not leave them in the dark. We don't leave them in the dark. Paul didn't just say, you're sinners. All of this idolatry is worthless. How could you abandon the one true God and just, you know, wash his hands and walk out of there? He didn't stop there. He continued in his proclamation of the gospel, and so also was, must we. We must continue in our proclamation of the gospel, not leaving people in the dark saying, well, you're a sinner. Good luck finding out how to be redeemed by God, but rather pointing them to the one who alone has the power to be saved calling on them to place their faith, to repent of their sins and place their faith in the one who God has sent to be the Savior of the world. This is what Paul does here in verse 21, or 31. He calls on them to repent in verse 30, and he gives them the reason why they must repent, and it is because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul tells them about Jesus here. And even though Luke doesn't tell us that he has mentioned him by name, we know for certain that he has mentioned Jesus here because what Paul was brought before the Areopagus for was for the idea that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Surely he is proclaiming Jesus Christ to these individuals here. He is calling on all of them to repent of their sins and to call upon Jesus Christ to be saved, not only because Jesus is God's Savior, but also because Jesus is God's judge. He is telling them that there is a day in time when every single human, you know, it doesn't matter when you were born, doesn't matter what country you are in, doesn't matter if you were an indigenous person or an individual who is living in the known world, there is coming a day when God is going to bring every single person who has ever lived before himself, and they are going to stand before him on the day of judgment, before the one in whom he has appointed to be judged, namely his son, Jesus Christ. And they need, they need to know Jesus Christ if they are to escape the wrath that is to come on that day of judgment. They need to know Jesus Christ. Paul is telling them that Jesus is the deciding factor as to whether man can enter the eternal rest of God or spend an eternity in judgment. They need to know Jesus Christ. And these people, these Athenians might ask, well, on what standard? On what standard am I going to be judged? People say, well, well I think I'm good enough. I've done enough good things. I've never killed anyone. I've, I've never cheated on my wife. I, I've given money to the church. On what standard, of, what, what standard is God going to judge me by? What Paul says here is that the Lord will judge the world in righteousness. In righteousness. He will judge the world in perfection. Not was I good enough, but was I 
perfect. And anyone who stands before God on the day of judgment cannot stand before God as a perfect man or a perfect woman because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one, no one can offer to God the righteousness that he requires to enter into his presence because God has said there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who is righteous, but yet but yet, even though there is no one who is righteous to stand before God and, to, and say to God, I am worthy to enter into your rest because of who I am, God has said, it is enough that you cannot do this, but it is enough also that I can make a way. I can send my son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice that you need. I can send my son, I can appoint my son, Jesus Christ, to be the sacrifice that you need. That, 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 that through the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ, his righteousness will be implied upon or applied upon your, ha- your behalf in order that you can enter into my promised rest forever. We need only but trust in his sacrifice. This is what God is declaring. God is not only declaring that there is a day of judgment which is to come, he is also declaring that he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save us from the wrath that is to come. And it's in Romans chapter 4, verse 16 to 25. It says, that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, what what Jesus has done, what Paul is proclaiming that Jesus has done is Jesus is our righteousness and he alone can bring us justification before God. We can stand before the promised judge, the judge who is going to damn people to an eternity in hell because they have failed to receive his promise by faith. We can stand before him in judgment unashamed, We can stand before him in judgment, bold, knowing that we can enter into his promised rest, not because of works of righteousness, which we have done, but because we have placed our faith in God and his righteousness has been imparted on our behalf. Paul has given these people the gospel and now it is on them to respond to the message that that he has given to them. And these people immediately, the first thought is, well, how can you be so sure? How can one know that man can escape the day of judgment by believing in this, this man that God has appointed to be judge of both the living and the dead? Well, Paul tells them here. He says, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has confirmed this to be true. God has confirmed the gospel because Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus did not stay in the grave. Jesus rose from the grave and he ever lives to intercede on all who call upon his name by faith. You see, Paul would say to them, God did not pour out his wrath alone. God God did pour out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross as penalty for our sins. But God, approving of the sacrifice in which Jesus gave on our behalf, raised Jesus from the dead. And now he is calling on all men and women everywhere to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. He has told them that Jesus saves. And now it is upon them, these, these Athenians, who have heard the message of the gospel in a masterful yet simplistic way, to respond to what Paul has given to them. And to understand how they respond, I have found it best that we will hold off till next week to see the response of these Athenians. But the reality is, is every single person, every single that we proclaim the gospel message to, we must proclaim to them that Jesus saves, that he alone saves. You see, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, we have the opportunity every day to relate to humanity. You see, people, we always think, well, how am I going to be able to approach someone with the gospel? How can I approach someone with the gospel? What is, what is it that I can do that can lead into a conversation where I can share the gospel message with someone? Well, as I have said, there is a savior complex in our world today. Everyone is searching for a savior. Every single person is searching for a savior. And, and certainly they, don't not, they do not yet know that they need to be saved from the wrath of God as punishment for their sins. But they are searching for a Savior, and we can point them to the Savior who alone has the power to save. 
We can say to them, I, I know that you are searching for a Savior, but I have found the Savior, and my search is over. I don't have to look any further. You're looking for the government, you're looking for your friend, or you're looking for your boss, or you're looking for a spouse, or, or you're looking for a good job or a good car. You're looking for all of these things to be your Savior. I have found the Savior, and I do not need to look any further. His name is Jesus Christ. You see, we have the opportunity every day to relate to humanity through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, if we can only make them aware of Jesus and that He will save them from their sins, that, that He will save them from the wrath that is to come, on, all, on top of that, we will also be able to remind them or, or proclaim to them that not only does Jesus save us from our sins, which is enough, but also Jesus saves us from the anxieties and the anxiousness that this world often offers to us. I mentioned how there are those who think that the government is going to save them. They think that the government is going to provide for their needs. They think that the government is going to protect them from their enemies. They think that the government is going to be able to do all of these things. Well, we know that there is one King, that there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, who alone upholds all things by the word of His power. He allows for men and women to be raised up in the governments. He allows for nations to rise and also to fall. We do not need to place our trust in the government. Rather, we can place our trust in God. And no matter if our nation comes crumbling to nothing, no matter if the United States of America is wiped off of the face of the earth, Jesus is still king. And people can know that as they enter into this relationship with him. There are also those who are seeking the unity of humanity, thinking that, well, if we just all love one another, everything's going to be good. We can tell them that by the Spirit of God who is given to us on our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit unites us as one race, as one people, as the church of Jesus Christ. And we are united not because we all believe or we all think the same or look the same or act the same, but rather we are united because God Himself has united us. And we have love for one another. Certainly it's not perfect, but we have love for one another. And in our fellowship, there is neither Jew nor Greek or slave nor free or male nor female. We are all one here in Christ Jesus. There is not to be division in the church because we have the Spirit of God. On top of this, there are those who think that death is going to save them or, or those who are fearful of death. Well, what does the Scriptures tell us about Jesus and what He did to the fear of death? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, Jesus is the Savior, and that just carries so much weight with it. We cannot even begin to proclaim how truly wonderful it is to proclaim that Jesus saves. Therefore, we praise Him. Therefore, we proclaim Him. You see, church, as we know that Jesus saves, we can go forward as Paul did. We can go forward as Peter did. We can go forward as any individual who was proclaiming the gospel did. We can go to them knowing that the one in whom we proclaim is not some faulty individual. It is not some individual who, who might be able to save. It is not some individual who will work for this culture, but the next culture, it doesn't really work. They don't have the same problems that this culture has. We can proclaim to them the one, the only one who has the power to save Jesus Christ. We can proclaim to them the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if they call upon His name to be saved, they will be reconciled to their Creator, escaping the wrath that is to come, but they are also in this promised eternal fellowship with their God. There's often this scripture that I think I just gloss over, but I was thinking about it this week, and it just has so much beauty to it. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do we realize what beauty we can bring to people when we proclaim the gospel to them? Not us, certainly not us. We're not the beauty that they are perceiving. The beauty, the beauty of the feet of those who preach the good news stems alone from the fact that we are preaching the most beautiful, precious Savior that anyone could ever call upon, and His name is Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us go then and share the gospel with someone today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this blessed, blessed day that You have given to us. Lord, we thank you that by your word we have been able to continually come under the conviction uh, of your spirit to go and proclaim the gospel message. God, we know that we're not Paul. We know that we're not like many of these heroes of the faith that we read of in the books of the scriptures. But God, we do know also that Paul is not great in and of himself. We do know also that, that the heroes of the faith are not great in and of themselves, but rather they have been made great because you reside upon them. You live within them, Lord. You have given them boldness to proclaim the gospel message through your Spirit. And God, I pray that we would take hold of that truth today. That though we are not Paul, Paul is also not us. We have been given and, and uniquely gifted in many wonderful ways to be able to share the gospel in ways that others cannot share it. 
And so, God, I pray and ask for your spirit to continually be empowering us, empowering us to be faithful witnesses to the ends of the earth, leading us to share the gospel with someone today, leading us to spark up conversations with individuals which could lead into sharing the gospel, leading us to use the techniques and the tactics which we have seen used by Paul and and, and many of those throughout the scriptures as they are relating the gospel message to individuals. God, we know that we have a task before us, but we also know that it can be done that evangelism works. Lord, we know that there will be one day when all of us are standing before you, praising you from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, praising you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, give us the boldness to proclaim the gospel message, knowing that evangelism works. Lord, that you are calling people to yourself, and we will see people saved as we proclaim the message to them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.